Under the law of defamation, a communication is defamatory if it tends to so harm the reputation of another as to lower him in the estimation of the community or to deter third persons from associating or dealing with him. The law of defamation goes back centuries. The ninth commandment to Moses on Sinai states, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Roman law offered civil and criminal remedies against defamation. Early English cases punished the spreading of lies about others. These sentiments were carried into colonial law and remain the primary protection of a person's reputation in American law today. But what is reputation? Wrapped up in concepts of property law, honor, and dignity, reputation is the sum of our social interactions, the internalization of which creates our own unique identity. Reputation and identity are intertwined. When viewed in the context of one's identity, it is easy to understand why Shakespeare, in Othello, wrote the following about reputation. He who steals my purse steals trash, but he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Similarly, in the 1966 Supreme Court case Rosenblatt v. Bayer, Justice Stewart wrote about reputation and human dignity in the following way. The right of a man to the protection of his own reputation from unjustified invasion and wrongful hurt reflects no more than our basic concept of the essential dignity and worth of every human being, a concept at the root of any decent system of ordered liberty. In the social media age, a person's reputation can change in an instant. To the extent reputation governs one's identity, even one false statement posted on the internet can spread like wildfire and destroy one's sense of self almost immediately. This is especially true of public figures like politicians and movie stars. On May 27, 2016, actress and star of the blockbuster Aquaman, Amber Heard, published an op-ed in the Washington Post stating that she was the victim of domestic abuse and sexual violence. In the article, Heard implied that her ex-husband, international movie star Johnny Depp, was the perpetrator. As a result of the op-ed, Heard became a voice of the Me Too movement. Johnny Depp, on the other hand, became a pariah. Four days after the op-ed, Depp lost the opportunity to appear in Pirates of the Caribbean 6, among other acting opportunities in the ensuing years. His career appeared to be over. However, Depp and his public relations team went on the offensive. He filed a defamation lawsuit contending that Heard's allegations were part of an elaborate hoax. According to Heard, countersuit for defamation, Depp's team also spearheaded a false and defamatory social media smear campaign against her which harmed her reputation and acting career. In the most high-profile trial of this century, the battle for Depp and Heard's reputations played out on television and over social media throughout the world. Dubbed the first trial by TikTok, Heard and Depp supporters recounted their own views of the daily trial events, sometimes to millions of followers. Hashtag Justice for Johnny Depp became a rallying call for Depp supporters hoping the trial would revitalize Depp's career. 
After a six-week trial, the jury returned a verdict. Would the jury restore Depp's reputation and dignity? This is Depp versus Heard. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Burnkoff. Today, we're talking to one of Johnny Depp's trial lawyers, a giant in the legal industry, Wayne Dennison. Wayne's a partner at the Boston office of Brown Rudnick and successfully represented Johnny Depp in the defamation case against Amber Heard. Welcome, Wayne. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Bob. Happy to be here. So, Wayne, I think everyone listening knows what happened at trial. The jury found that Amber Heard defamed Depp and awarded Depp $15 million in total damages. Now, they also awarded Heard $2 million in damages on her counterclaims, which I'll come back to in a few minutes. But by most accounts, this was a decisive victory for Johnny Depp. But what is so fascinating to me about this case is not necessarily the monetary result. It's that you and your trial team seem to have achieved something rather elusive, something far more elusive than a big monetary verdict, a restoration of Depp's place in society. Now, as a litigator and trial lawyer myself, I've counseled clients on numerous occasions that if you're coming to the civil justice system looking for some kind of cosmic justice, you've come to the wrong place. I can't repair your broken relationships. I can't restore your dignity. And yet, in the opening pages of the lawsuit against Heard, that's what Depp says he's after. Quote, Mr. Depp brings this defamation claim to clear his name and restore his reputation. As an outsider looking in on what happened here, that seems to have been the result with this trial and in particular with the jury's verdict. But I think the reason that this worked was not just based on what happened inside the court but also what happened outside the courtroom. TikTok, the nightly news, Twitter, everyone seems to have had an opinion on what was going on. And a critical mass seems to have viewed Depp in a very positive light. Now, lawyers in general, trial lawyers in particular, tend to be control freaks. We're trained to try and control as best we can the events unfolding in front of the jury. But in a case like this, it can be, I imagine, a lot harder to control how things are being perceived by potentially millions of observers who may only be tuning into a portion of the testimony or even like a 30-second clip on YouTube or LinkedIn or whatever. So the first question to you, Wayne, is how did you exercise control over the media aspects of this case, if at all? In, in particular, did you work with any public relations consultants? And if so, what did those interactions look like? So in short, we did not exercise control over the external media. And your question started with a description of 
my law firm and my colleagues trying to help Johnny restore his reputation. Johnny restored his own reputation. He was an absolutely compelling witness. He was a compelling witness from the first word out of his mouth. In 30 years of practice, I haven't seen a better witness. He was a witness who actually took responsibility for various things that, that could be perceived negatively. And he was, I think, the sole reason that the social media so sided with him because you didn't have to watch much of Johnny testify before concluding that you had a man up there who was telling that very unvarnished truth about some very difficult aspects of his life. That's a really, that's a good segue into another point that I wanted to ask you about. I know that you were involved in preparing Johnny for his trial testimony. And as you mentioned, there was some difficult evidence that you had to know was going to come up on cross-examination. I'm thinking of some of the text messages that were shared during the trial, or even some of the video of Johnny that was shared during the trial. So knowing it's all going to come in some fashion, how did you prepare for that? Or how did you help Johnny prepare for that? Obviously, I'm not asking for specific conversations, but take us through the process as best you can without divulging client confidences. And as part of your answer, I'd love to know, did you guys do any mock trials or focus groups or anything like that in the lead up to trial? So the manner in which I did this and we did it collectively, but I spent a lot of time with Johnny prior to his testimony to deal with his cross. I do a fair amount of cross-examination in my own practice. I quite frankly pride myself on my ability to do that kind of work. And I wanted to make the cross-examination of Johnny Depp that we did in practice more difficult than the cross-examination of Johnny Depp that would happen at trial. And that was my principal effort was I wanted to make trial easier than practice. And yeah, of course I was, we were collectively aware of text messages and videos, all of which Johnny quite forthrightly acknowledged, admitted and explained. And that's all you can ask of a witness. Other than that, you asked about mock trials. The only mock work that we did was the, was that I pretended to be the person who was going to ask Johnny questions across. And so I, I didn't work specifically with Johnny on his directs, except to the extent that some of the direct anticipate, anticipated the cross. But at the end of the day, what I did was quite frankly, tried to make a cross-examination that was going to be just as, or more difficult in practice than it was in reality. You mentioned in that answer how you do a fair amount of cross-examination in your own practice. So I have to ask you about this cross-examination of Dr. Spiegel. And please feel free to correct me if I'm explaining his role incorrectly. But my understanding is that Spiegel was a psychiatrist hired by Hurd's team, essentially to opine that Depp's character traits were consistent with those of an abuser. Now, during cross-examination, your approach appears to have been to give this guy 
sort of enough rope to hang himself. He would go on these lengthy explanations that came off, at least to me, as evasive and non-responsive. So in perhaps the most well-known part of the cross-examination, and I encourage everyone listening to watch this cross-examination on YouTube, it was masterful. The issue was, what was what Spiegel characterized as Depp's cognitive decline? So Spiegel identifies several reasons in which he claims Johnny Depp was suffering from cognitive decline. And one of the reasons he gives was that Depp supposedly used an earpiece to have some of his lines piped in during movie film. And so in response to this opinion, and I think to draw a comparison between Depp and one of Depp's friends and idols, Marlon Brando, a brilliant and well-respected actor in his day, you asked Spiegel something to the effect of, are you aware that Marlon Brando wore an earpiece? And Spiegel's response was, isn't he dead? And it was just such a bizarre response on so many levels. But I think it really solidified a lot of what you were trying to accomplish in this cross-examination, that this guy either wasn't listening to the questions or he wasn't interested in answering them in a direct or responsive way. Either way, I think he comes off as not credible. But in order to get to that point, you got to mix it up with him. And you do that for at least 45 minutes before you get to this point. And you're a lawyer. You're not a psychiatrist. And cross-examining experts is not the easiest thing in the world to do. But you stick with it, and you got some terrific results. So how did you prepare for this cross-examination, and what tools did you have at your disposal? Video deposition, testimony from other cases. In terms of the preparation, I didn't just do the opposing experts, but I put on, for instance, Johnny's, the psychologist who had done the independent evaluation of Amber Heard, a psychologist by the name of Shannon Curry, who I thought was a tremendous witness, uh, a really compelling witness. And Dr. Curry and I worked together a great deal over, over the course of the trial to try to garner from her expertise around these issues. So I had this incredible resource, Dr. Shannon Curry, and she made herself available to me literally at all hours to try to teach me what I may or may not know. She was particularly useful both with Mr. or with Dr. Siegel and with Dr. Dawn Hughes, who was a witness who was intended to discredit uh, Dr. Curry, but I suggest you didn't do a very good job of that. In terms of Dr. Spiegel, at first blush, he looked like a reasonable expert. He went on, he talked about his credentials and he had strong Virginia credentials. I had taken some effort to try to discredit him in front of the jury on voir dire, at least with respect to this intimate partner violence um, expertise, but the judge didn't accept that and let him talk about inter intimate partner violence. And my approach with experts generally has been one of, you, before you're going to get in the face of an expert, you're going to have to earn that right. So you're going to be courteous, you're going to talk to the expert, but you're going to narrowly confine what they get to talk about. This particular expert, Mr. Dr. Siegel, came literally out of the box on my first question at a 
register of his voice that was nearly screaming at me. And he came out so hot and quite frankly, so strange that on the fly, I thought to myself, let's let this guy roll and see what we can do with it. Because tell this to everybody, I'm convinced that trial work is jazz. And you've got to learn to do and play all the notes. But once you know the notes, what you really need to do is listen to the music. And if you don't like the tune, you got to bring it back around to something you can play. But trial work is jazz for me. And this was a literally a move that I thought, you know, let's see what happens to this guy. And he was so strange and so vehement in some of his testimony. And then quite frankly, some of his testimony was just odd. He came to the conclusion that Johnny had cognitive deficits based on a comparison between his deposition transcripts, his trial testimony, and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Uh, I found that just a bizarre answer. So I decided to ask him what other movies he chose to watch of Johnny's and what comparisons he made. And frankly, I think the most famous thing I will ever say in court will boil down to, so Willy Wonka doesn't matter to you. Because I asked him about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He then he said he didn't see the movie. I then asked him, so Willy Wonka doesn't matter to you. And he absolutely loses it. In fact, asks the judge whether he asked to answer the question, starts playing with his jaw. And at that second, and thank you for observing the Brando question, but that second, he was done in front of the jury. He, the whole premise of what he was testifying to is, I watch Johnny Depp in the movies, and therefore I can tell you that he's declined in some way, is ridiculous. In part, and I asked him about this, actors rehearse in order to do movies. And he, you know, he, he was gracious enough to indicate that he wasn't, he didn't know as much about acting as Johnny Depp did. Right. A, a, a very significant concession. That, that's fascinating. I mean, the, the idea that some of that was done on the fly, just the quick thinking on your feet is just tremendous. So well done. That was a fascinating cross-examination. Obviously very successful. I want to switch gears a second and just ask about the verdict and in particular, the verdict for Heard. So the verdict for Depp is pretty straightforward. Defamation and the jury determines he's entitled to $15 million in damages. On the flip side, you've got the jury finding that Heard was defamed by Depp and his, I guess, one of his former attorneys, Waldman, who had basically just claimed that Heard's statements were all a hoax. So this is sort of at first blush, but on the one hand, you've got the jury saying that Heard's statements that Depp was abusive were false, in essence, that it was a hoax. But on the other hand, you have a jury saying that Depp's statement that Heard was involved in a hoax was also false. So again, as an outsider, the verdicts almost appear inconsistent. But I know from reviewing the docket that Heard's motion for a new trial, which included some arguments about the inconsistency in the verdict, I know that motion was denied. So I think I'm oversimplifying things and what the jury did here. Can you explain to the listeners 
why the verdict was not inconsistent? I can, but I'm going to do it in the broadest possible terms because the verdict is under appeal. We have, we have an appeal pending. There was an order literally entered today as to when Herd's brief will be due. And she got a few more pages to make her arguments. If you look closely at the jury questionnaire, the one count that she won on deals with a very specific set of individual facts and one single night and activities that were then reported to the police by either Ms. Heard or her entourage. And that is just a, and it doesn't relate specifically in any way to domestic abuse. That's the one she won on. The, she had three claims of defamation, all of which were, a tri, were language that Mr. Waldman had used that she wanted to attribute to Mr. Depp, and that will be an appellate issue on our side. But, but quite frankly, the one count of defamation that she won on very specifically deals with a set of facts that has nothing to do with Johnny Depp or any allegation that he committed domestic abuse. So I know that you got involved in this trial fairly late in the game. The litigation had been going on for, I, I think, an extended period of time, or maybe you were on the doorstep of trial when you got involved. And I just wanted to ask you about that, Wayne. When did you come into this? And basically, what did you have to do to get up to speed so quickly? in order to be involved and be such an instrumental part of the trial team? I got involved after the trial had already started. One member of the trial team could not participate and I therefore replaced him. I was always considered an, a logical person to, uh, to cross-examine Johnny. I was likely to have come in cold to cross-examine Johnny in order to just give him a face that he didn't know. In fact, the very first thing I did with Johnny Depp was cross-examine Johnny. Hi, I'm Wayne. What do you want to be called? I'm going to be mean to you for the next four or five hours. In order to catch up or in order to be able to do what my role was, I really did have a role. I put on a couple of fact witnesses, but my role was largely confined to experts. So it was a review of the expert depositions, of the expert reports, was working with our uh, affirmative experts, both on putting on their testimony in a way that we thought was compelling and in using them as resources to make the cross-examinations fruitful. So the principal assistance that I received was from our own experts. And I also worked very closely with one of my partners in Boston, Rebecca Lacaros, who did whatever expert I didn't do, she did. So here's the last question, because I think all the listeners will want to know, what was Depp like as a client? Was he responsive? Did he study? Did he show up for meetings? Any, anything you could tell the listeners about Depp as a client? He was a tremendously easy person to work with. He is an enormously kind individual. And I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed working with him. It was a real joy. I thought you never know what you're going to get, especially given 
how famous he is. What you got was an incredibly gracious, kind human being who wanted to take your advice. We had a discussion about this. I'd been trying cases for 30 years. He wanted my advice and he took it. And he was obviously very able to integrate whatever advice we gave him. I, you know, I've seen him since the trial and I spent an hour and a half with him the other night and he continues to just be an extraordinarily gracious and kind man. Wayne, congratulations on such a high profile victory and best of luck to you and your team on appeal. Thank you very much. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments. 